Hey friends, Andy Jenkins here in the garage at the Hilltop. That is where I've been recording for the past couple episodes here. And, you know, honestly, I like it. We've got a shipping department set up here. We've got, uh, still have the office upstairs, but it's just, I already had everything down here for an audiobook setup. So I thought, ah, let's just walk in and let's just use it. Okay, so let me tell you what's going on with this. Uh, it's kind of, I don't really think of it as a series, but it's just kind of a, I guess it is a series. I'm doing topics here, talks on the same topic in a row. That that tends to be a series. Okay, so here's what I've got. Here's what I'm hitting at. Uh, last episode, I started talking about this idea that uh, particularly for men, you are called to lead strong. Don't back down. Lead strong. So you might have failed in the past. That doesn't mean you need to back down. You might have messed up in the past. That doesn't mean you need to back down. You might have even been overbearing or harsh as a leader in the past. That doesn't mean that you back down. You still want to lead strong. You want to love even stronger. Now, the content from all of this that I'm talking to you about, it really comes from this book that I put together in the summer. The name of it is Stronger, Biblical Insights for Men on Masculinity and Spiritual Leadership. Uh, put it together when I was going to a church to talk for their homecoming event um, up in Bryson City, North Carolina. was just kind of going through some old ideas that I had, really reshaping them, retooling them, uh, making some slides and other elements and thought, you know what, I'm going to just, this is looking like a book, it's shaping out like a book, it wouldn't take much more effort to transition it into a book. So made the book and decided to give the audiobook away absolutely free. So there's a link down in the show notes where you can grab that and really started putting together some of the ideas for me that, that I want to implement you know, in my home right now, in this big uh, four or five year period of major life transition, uh, it's some things that I really want to teach the boys, things that I want them to maybe refine and shape as their own, building on, on what I've put here, uh, taking my best shot at it, and they keep shaping it and tooling it. Uh, it's things I want the girls to know and, and sense of, you know, what kind of guy do do I even look for? Uh, which kind of guys should I see and instantly say, hey, you know, thanks, you're a nice guy, but, but no thanks, not marriageable material. So that's really where all of this came from. Okay, so here's what I want to do. In this talk, I want to discuss uh, really area number one of authority, and that is the family. In the next talks, I'll, I'll do area number two, which is really spiritual area. That's kind of like the church. Uh, in the next talk after that, I'll talk about the government or civic authority, civic leadership. But the first domain of authority, and, and that is the word I'm using um, it's been misused, it's been mislabeled, it's been taken and hijacked. Really kind of want to put it in a healthy sphere. The first area of authority is, I believe, the family. And in the scripture, it's the man that's called to lead. Now, leadership, I really believe, entails responsibility and influence. It doesn't mean the woman doesn't lead. It doesn't mean the woman doesn't hear the voice of God. It doesn't mean the woman is not incredibly gifted. Uh, it doesn't mean that the man dominates her. In fact, we're going to talk through that in this episode and in a future one that I've got planned. 
Um, but it it does mean there are some things that that we need to hold in tension. First um, Corinthians eleven three, Paul says the head of the woman is man. Um, another passage, Ephesians five twenty three, Paul says the husband is the head of the wife. Now, in each of those verses, both of them, it's the leadership and the headship of Christ over the church, as well as, catch this, his sacrificial love for his bride that is the model for men and how the men are to emulate leadership in the home. Now, uh, what we learn in Scripture is that the model of Christ in the church is really an image where we see how men are to lead. Also, we see that this is anchored in creation. So in 1 Timothy 2.12, very confusing verse. I don't even know if I can untangle it. Paul says that it's because of creation he doesn't allow a a woman to have authority over a man. Um, the, The idea is that Paul is rooting down on creation, not culture. He's rooting on Christ not culture. It it does not mean that these aren't complex ideas. It doesn't mean that they're tidy and they're simple to get through. It does mean that there is something larger than just the whim of the latest cultural craze that we we need to look at. Now, if if we look at the whim of the cultural crazes, there are times culturally that uh, men have oppressed women. There are times culturally that women are elevated to a different place than than I really think they should be as well. So we want to get into these verses. We want to really take some time to unpack them, not that we're going to resolve it all here. Um, And we want to see, okay, how do we lead strong, love even stronger, do it in a healthy way? So Paul reminds us, he says, go back back to God's original intention before sin and folly enter the picture, because it's not sin that causes men to lead. A lot of cultures will say, oh, it's sin that causes men to lead. They'll go, oh, look at all these chauvinists. Rather, it's sin that causes men to lead in ungracious ways. Um, It's sin that causes people to rebel because of that. Let, let me just read this. But Genesis 2 is the account where we see all of this starting to unfold. Genesis 2-7, the, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper Okay, there's, there, there is a hot word right there. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, here's that word again, uh, helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. 
And then God took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, that's a long passage. A lot of hot words in there. Here are a few things that I want to highlight to you, though. Okay, so... Just a couple bullet points. One, two, three, four, five that I have in my notes. Number one, God formed Adam from the dirt. He then breathed life into the man and he lived. Here's the second observation. God told Adam not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This happened presumably before Eve was created. Bullet point number three, God saw that it was, here's the quote, not good that man was alone. This is the first instance of not good that we see in creation. After every other thing that God made, he said, it was good. Saw it, it was good. Saw it, it was good. Sees this, man's alone, not good. And uh, this observation, it occurs after Adam saw all the other animals and that they had mates. Uh, my thought that I uh, really write about in another resource, the advanced book, is that God probably already foresaw this issue. It's likely that Adam was like every other male on the planet, and he absolutely needed to see it for himself to understand that it was not good that he was alone. Uh, fourth observation, God put man into a deep sleep. He took a rib, and here's a cool word. He fashioned the woman from man's side. She was not taken from his head to rule over him, nor was she taken from his feet that he might rule over her. That is language that I heard from my dad at wedding after wedding after wedding after wedding. I've seen him play this out in his relationship with my mom uh, and have seen him walk this relationship with her for decades that he does not rule over her. She does not rule over him. He doesn't trample her. She doesn't trample him. She is at his side. And observation number five is about that word fashioned. God fashioned the woman in a different man than he formed the man. If you read back through the text, those are the words. Out of the dirt, Lord formed man from the dirt. He fashioned the woman from his rib. So you and I would quickly read through the English and rarely notice that difference. In, in fact, until somebody pointed this out to me, I did not notice the difference. However, here it is. You might not have seen it before. Uh, he fashioned the woman. The, the two words are radically different in the Hebrew, denoting a higher level of care a greater degree of precision, a more elevated design being taken with the woman. She is the final feature of the created order. She is the crown. She is not just a different version of the guy. She is uh, an elevated. This is 2.0. This is something exquisite. Uh, now, now, those of you who are Hebrew scholars or who want to look this up in the scripture or you want to go uh, find a commentary or a lexicon, the word for the man is yatsar. The man was yatsard. Uh, it, it means to make, to form. It's used to describe a potter and a clay. 
It is still an intimate connection. It's uh, imagery we see all throughout the scripture. The woman, however, is not Yatsar like a potter and clay. She is Bana or Bana, to build up, to fashion, to shape. It is a higher level of creative genius and usefulness. Now, all of that leads me to these final two notes, okay? Presumably, after all that happens, we see the woman. God never told Eve directly from the text not to eat the fruit, but the serpent targets her. And instead of tempting her to act diametrically opposed to the word of God, he as he later does with Jesus in the temptation scenes in the wilderness, he incites her to question what God has said. Genesis 3.1 tells us that the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? He, he doesn't just come to her and go, hey, why don't you go do this? It's more of this kind of, oh, hey, yeah, there, there might be something different here. Think about it like this. Luke 4, 22, Luke tells us that God declared at the baptism scene of Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Satan encountered at the temptation scene immediately thereafter, if you really are the son. You see, he, he, he removes that word beloved and he just puts in that doubt, sprinkles in that question. That's how this entire thing begins. And as a result, the scripture narrative tells us that Eve, at the fall, eats the fruit first. Now, that, that's something we all knew. I didn't have to read you the text for that. We all knew that's what's happening. Uh, she was told that God knows that her eyes will be open and that she will be like God. In the same way that Satan tempts Jesus with things that are already true and already his. You know, if you bow down, I'll give you all these kingdoms, everybody will worship you. you know, that kind of thing. Eve is tempted by Satan with something she already possesses. When you eat this, you will be like God, he says. The truth is, Adam and Eve already were like God. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's this ancient Puritan proverb that says something like, while Adam was away, Eve fell astray. But when we look at the text, we see that's not true at all. When the fall occurred, Adam stood beside Eve as she was tempted. It, it's almost like, well, the scripture says, Genesis 3, 4, she took of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and then he ate. I, I remember growing up, and one of the biggest images you would see uh, growing up, particularly in Disney movies, that sort of thing, was the image of a knight in shining armor that would defeat the dragon. <laughs> so right here, just kind of using that imagery, if Adam is the knight in shining armor, rather than standing between the woman and the dragon, that's what true leadership would be. Rather than standing between the woman and the dragon, Adam effectively hands his sword. Scripture tells us the word of God is a sword. We read that in Ephesians 6, 17, that the word of God is the sword. He effectively hands that sword to the dragon and allows the dragon to then bend it, twist it, and run the woman through with that sword. So with that, we then step into 
really this section in Genesis where we begin learning about how all of this plays out. It's where the story gets really interesting. Adam and Eve, they feel ashamed, so they hide themselves. God approaches them, as it seems he must do every evening as part of the routine. But then he looks for Adam. He doesn't look for Adam and Eve. He looks for Adam. Genesis 3.9 tells that the Lord called to the man and asked, Where are you? Hey, hey, just while he's walking through, where are you? Notably, God didn't seek Eve, even though she technically sinned first. He sought the one to whom he entrusted his word, the one he now held responsible, Adam. It, It seems to me right here from this, just an idea that God might tell the authority, the leader, things he doesn't tell all of us because he works through those delegated authorities. Remember, God gave Adam the commands about the tree. That was Genesis 2.17. We read that. But Eve wasn't even created until four verses later. So again, to be clear, according to the text, she was created after Adam was told not to eat of the fruit. That then means this, just my observation, what, what I'm kind of thinking is I'm fleshing this out. The authority is responsible for everything under the oversight of the authority, even if the authority is not necessarily, quote, guilty of an action that occurs. The authority still has accountability for everything there. And, and here's where I see a difference between fault and responsibility. Eve actually ate from the tree first. A- Adam did eat after her. However, 100% of the issue at hand, though it perhaps might be, and and I really say might be, because he was standing right there and he knew what was going on, might be her fault. It is 100% his responsibility. Um, When you're reading the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14, Eve was deceived, yet Adam intentionally defied God. And Paul says those are two radically different things, when you're deceived as opposed to intentionally defiant. Here's what it says. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Here's another element I see. I I really don't think Satan cares about your authority structure in your home. He will go after the woman He will go after the kids. He doesn't just come knock on the door and go to the man straight up and say, hey, you want to fight, you know, win or take all. He actively seeks anyone he can steal, kill from, or destroy. Uh, That's what John 10.10 says, that he's a thief, he's a liar, who comes to seek to kill, steal, and destroy, even though Jesus comes to give us life and life more abundantly. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8 says that he roams around roaring like a lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what maybe that looks like just on an easy level. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we lived downtown, and one of my boys, who is Judah, he tossed a makeshift boomerang. Now, I want you to envision this. It, it didn't really look like a boomerang. It looked like a stick with a slight bend in it that fell from a tree. He thought, because he had seen it on TV, you toss that thing, it's going to take this big round about in the air, and it's going to come right back to you. Well, when he tossed it towards the neighbor's house, thinking it's going to you know, round about and hook, come right back, I, I know you know exactly where this is going. It, boom, went right into the neighbor's window. Now, that accident was Judah's fault, not my fault. 
However, it was my responsibility to ensure the window is repaired. Why? Because I'm accountable for Judah. If I wasn't accountable, it necessarily wouldn't be under my authority, but authority and accountability, those things really, they really go together. Uh, think about it another way like this, and then I'll finish up the Judah story. Um, a couple weeks ago, let one of the kids borrow my my car, the blacked out Kia SUV. Uh, her car was in the shop. It's on a recall. Uh, the manufacturer Hyundai's got this massive recall issue going on. And so instead of trying to rent a car, we were going to take it to the shop and just figure out what's going on. Beth and I both work from home. So we had the latitude to really kind of say, Hey, let's just figure this out and see where everything is before we spend any money. So when that car came back, I felt like that kid had the authority over the car during that two-month period she borrowed it. Therefore, she should be accountable to make sure there's gas in the car, which she did. She should be accountable to make sure the trash is out of the car when she brings it back, which she did. There was only like one little wrapper in the car when I got it back. She had authority over the car. Therefore, she was accountable for the car. Okay, to keep it gassed, if there was a flat tire, I would have expected her to at least call me, let me know what's going on so we could figure out what do we do next. Why? Authority and accountability, they go together. When you have authority, you have the accountability and the responsibility even for things that might not be your fault. Let's say somebody else got that car and they went and they keyed it or they spray painted or they, I mean, who knows? People do crazy things. A friend was riding in the car with her, perhaps, and that friend spilled something, even though it's not our daughter's fault that the friend spilled something in the car. She has authority over the car. Therefore, she's accountable for anything that happens in and to that car while it's under her care. Um, At the same time, there's a nine-year-old that lives in this house. I don't hold him accountable for anything that occurs with that car. Why? He has no authority over it. He only gets to jump in when somebody else is driving it. And then it's generally to something that we have to make him go to, like school. You see, accountability and authority rise together, and it doesn't always mean that something that occurs was your fault. So Judah throws a quote, boomerang bent stick from a tree, it hits the neighbor's window, that is his fault. But because I have accountability and authority for him, I now have responsibility to deal with it. So here's what I did. I walked my son to the front door of the neighbor's house, knocked with him. So we're going to teach him in this moment what to do. We explain the damage. We promised to remedy the problem. The neighbor, uh, Carrie was his name, was absolutely fantastic. Great neighbors. Now, in the same way of that, the New Testament actually lays total blame for the fall on Adam. So, so many times as men, we, we want to look at leadership as what should I expect or get from other people But here's what I'm saying. When the Bible starts talking about these words, headship, when the Bible starts talking about these words, leadership, it's not what can I get so that I gain. It's what can I give so that other people are propelled forward towards their purpose. It's a completely different upside-down model of leadership. And we react to it, I think, culturally now because we haven't seen it play out in the way the Bible describes it. When it's played out in the way the Bible outlines it, man, people 
thrive. They come alive. And so they hunger for that type of leadership. And, and this is why I'm saying, uh, men, you don't need to lead less. You need to lead strong. You need to love even stronger. So the New Testament lays total blame for the fall on Adam, even though Eve ate the fruit first. Uh, we read in Romans 5.12 that sin entered the world by the action of one man. By the action of one man, sin entered into the world. It, it doesn't say by the action of one man. It doesn't say uh, combined with the woman. It doesn't say by the action of a woman alone. It says by the action of one man. So when God seeks them in the garden that evening in the cool of the night, as he did every afternoon, it seems... He goes for Adam. Here's where it gets kind of odd, and it plays out exactly like we play things culturally today. Rather than taking extreme ownership of the situation, Adam does what, what I've done, what many men do. He starts shifting the blame. First, he looks and blames the woman. And now, now that made sense. After all, she was there. She ate the fruit first. So when God says, hey, what happened? Why are they hiding? He, he responds, the, the woman. Well, right there, the, the woman. And then he blames God. He, he says, uh, the woman, oh, whom you put here. He reminds God that this woman, even though Adam was alone, this woman was his idea and again, Scripture, Romans 5.12, reminds us, no, no, no. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. It does not say anything about the woman. Now, if you remember what the serpent told Eve, if, if you remember the story from the text, it's in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the serpent told Eve that they would not die. That they would not die. And in a sense, he was right. They didn't die that day, but things did change, and they changed radically. For instance, I really believe that because of sin, many men right now uh, tend to not lead, or we tend to lead in ungodly ways. Genesis 3.15 tells us that there's now this enmity, this tension between the man and the woman. We no longer trust women as readily as we did before. As such, we question her, and instead of leading in a gracious way, side by side, you know, walking with, and that leadership being, hey, I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to step in front to protect, not to dominate, we tend to dominate. I don't think God intended for that to happen. The chauvinistic type of leadership, it results from sin and our ensuing mistrust of each other. I think sin also causes women to desire to lead. And I don't mean that women can't lead. I mean it causes them to want to dominate men. One of the results of the fall is that women's desire is for their husbands, yet they, the men, rule over those women instead of leading graciously. That word desire, it's used in Genesis same 3, it's the same word used of how sin seeks to master Cain. It is this intense yearning to, to somehow capture and contain, and then constrain. So what I've seen is a lot of women feel this tension, even though <laughs> this is directed towards men. This might kind of let you in on a tension that, that at least my perspective, 
Anyway, is, is women tend to crave a man to love and to lead them. They don't like to be alone. They desire the companionship of a man and will often more readily give themselves freely to a bad man in hopes he will accept them rather than remain alone and wait for a good man. They also desire to control and change that man. So sin creates this blatant distrust of men. It not only creates a situation in which men tend to dominate, they, they tend to rule rather than lead and protect graciously, it also implants the idea that women can't trust men to do what they need to do, just as Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do and protect Eve. Remember, he was the knight in shining armor, supposed to step up between the dragon and the woman, and instead of doing that, he steps behind the woman and gives the dragon his proverbial sword. So the result is today, women often step into the man's role and exert control. And then men do one of two things. They either, number one, they push back and create a cycle of struggle. Or two, they disengage completely and allow that woman to maintain control, often under this guise of just keeping the peace. So let me talk through those. Number one, they tend to push back and create a cycle of struggle. Uh, some of you have experienced that. There's this vicious cycle. It's a repeated domination and defiance. So it's the man dominates, the woman defies. The man dominates, the woman defies. Or the woman dominates, the man defies. The woman dominates, the man defies. Neither person walks in their God-given role. Neither one of you is happy. You spend more time battling each other than you do building a life together much less finding and fulfilling your purpose as a couple. You were designed side by side with different roles that are complementary. And, and I know that word complementarianism is a strain of theology that's been misused. It has some healthy parts, some unhealthy parts, as, as all theological systems do. Like there's so much more nuance, I think, than, than we give ourselves credit you know, for, for in the Scripture because it's, it's something we'll constantly be wrestling with. We're, we're not going to be able to contain it all in a tidy talk or in a tidy theological system. Rather than walking side by side, there's this ongoing cycle of struggle, of, of domination and defiance, domination and defiance, and you're just up and down, and you're together for three or four days, and you're freezing each other out for three or four days. You're together for three or four days. You're ah, ah, apart for three or four days. It's like just this emotional roller coaster, and all of that time that you could be building a life together, all of that time you could be enjoying all of that time you could be finding and fulfilling the purpose for which God created you as a couple. He brought you together because together you can achieve more than either one of you could alone. You never get to that point because you're stuck in the struggle. It's just like a spin cycle. In the second unhealthy pattern, the second one is one of you, generally the man, disengages completely and just allows the other one to maintain control. So a lot of times what I see is the man relinquishes leadership to the woman. He lets go. He steps back. He withdraws emotionally. He invests in other pursuits. Sometimes this manifests as long hours at the office. These are hours that he chooses, not hours I'm talking about while you're in a busy season or while there's a project going on. But you got to be real about it. If the season continues, you're no longer in a season of busy. You are in a new way of life that is disconnected from the family. 
Uh, other times, it might be hobbies that fill the void, that uh, occupy the time. Things like excessive video gaming, uh, extended time hunting or playing golf, or other times spent away from the family. And, and here's the tension. Hobbies can be a healthy part of a balanced life. So the goal is not to eliminate those, but it's to enjoy them in a life-giving way that foremost honors the family. Now, all of these cycles, and, and there could be others. These are just the two major that I see. All of this originates in the fall. Sin creates fractured relationships with each other and the authority. So it, it creates this space where no longer is, is the man stepping in and saying, hey, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to make it my sole foremost priority. Not not the only thing I do, but this is the center is to protect you, to love you, to elevate you, to find and fulfill your purpose. The, the sin hijacks all of those structures that are put in place for our good. Now, I, I don't have time for it, so I'm going to take a crash landing on this episode. And what I'll do is I'll come back. Uh, you say, well, is there something we can look at? Is there a game plan? And, and I would say yes. And that game plan is when we look at the Trinity. In the Trinity, that's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see a roadmap of how we should live, of how we should relate, of how we should interact. And you, and you look at it, and it is radically beautiful. And so here's what I want you to do. Go down to the show notes. Uh, take a look at the audiobook that's right there. If you want that, you can access that completely free. Paperback book is there too. Come back in the next episode, and I will talk to you about the Trinity and how in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, you and I, men and women, we are created in the image of God. When we look at what God is like, we see who we are partially. It takes both of us, men and women, to create that full image. But when we see it, it gives us a framework of how to live things out. All right, I'll see you in the next episode.